We are, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this 15th chapter of the first letter to the Corinthian church is a very important teaching regarding one of the most fundamental elements of the gospel message. And so we're taking our time working through it. Um, here Paul develops and defends the doctrine of the resurrection and helps his friends in Corinth to understand just how important it is that they get this doctrine right. You don't want to misunderstand what God has revealed about the power and importance of resurrection. So uh, we've worked our way through this chapter to this point. We are at verse 20 today, but verses 1 through 4 uh, spoke about how without the resurrection, you really have no gospel. The resurrection is part and parcel of the message that we proclaim and the hope in which we stand. Verses 5 through 11 spoke about the resurrection as well attested by many eyewitnesses. So historically, it is reliable. It is a fact that has so much amen to it that we too should come alongside those men who proclaim uh, the, the truth of the risen Christ and, and say amen to this fact. Verses 12 through 19 spoke about how the resurrection, if it is in itself impossible, then that means some, some very important things. If there is no resurrection then Christ has not risen from the dead. And if Christ has not risen from the dead, then those who proclaim Christ are hopeless. They have no reason to think that they too will overcome uh, the last enemy of death. And so today's passage is going to show us that our bodily resurrection is not only possible, but it is guaranteed. It's guaranteed by the fact that Jesus, our Savior, rose again. And in doing so, he secured a tremendous victory over the last enemy. And that last enemy is death itself. So this victory is the great culmination of the story of redemptive history. So we're talking about some very lofty things these last few weeks. Within the passage that we're going to study today, several key pieces of information are revealed to us that makes this passage kind of a crossroads of sorts for several theological debates that are currently going on. But my aim is not going to be to uh, flesh out all those debates. It's going to be to preach these verses in their native context and to only briefly touch on the most significant controversies that tie into this text so that we can see why this passage is relevant to those discussions. Our call to worship this morning was from a passage found in the book of John, John 11. And so uh, if you look again at verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is identifying himself as the cause and the power behind the resurrection. And if you do not have Jesus, if you are not found in him, then eternal life is not yours to claim. Death is not only an enemy to Christ, it is mankind's enemy. For death is the curse of those who are separated from God by sin, specifically by the sin of the very first man, Adam. But it is our great hope and joy that when we are connected through, uh, to Jesus Christ through faith, that the victory he wins over death becomes our victory as well. Death and sin are rendered powerless through his resurrection. And when Jesus says this of himself, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he asks Martha, do you believe this? And ultimately that should be important to all of us as well. Let us ask ourselves this question as we work through the scripture together today. Do we believe the things that Christ proclaims in his word? And if we do believe him, is our life reflecting a solid belief in that reality? So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read it and you can follow along there. We're going to look at verses 20 through 28 and then I'll pray 
and we'll get into the exposition of the word. Starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for uh, joining us this morning, for giving us the power of the Spirit to understand and to discern uh, how we are to take this text and live obediently according to it. We trust that you will guide our steps and direct our path as we study it together. Father, let our study of the Word never just be an academic exercise which fuels only our own boasting and egos, God, but instead let us See the scripture for what it is. It is truly our lifeline to you as we think about these words and what they reveal to you, things that we could never have figured out or discovered on our own. Let us rejoice in this word that we might know it in mind, but also in heart and in strength as we obey it. So we thank you, Father, for this time together. Uh, please help us to learn and to grow. And may our sanctification continue until the day of our glorification. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see right away in this passage, beginning in verse 20, that Paul has no more time for doubt and speculation. He declares what he believes and what every true Christian must believe, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Because of this fact, a special status belongs to Jesus. We are to consider him the first fruits of this blessed resurrection that God intends to one day bestow upon every believer. So what is the significance of Christ being called the first fruits of the resurrection? We know that Jesus has many titles and this is merely one of them, but it, it carries a special significance, particularly to this doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, we learn of first fruits in the Old Testament, don't we? It's a term that describes the proper way to give an offering to the Lord. Under the old covenant economy, those who brought a grain offering or a sacrifice of a bull or a goat were instructed to give their very best to the Lord and to give first, to have priority to the offerings that they were to bring to Yahweh. Uh, they were not to give their leftovers or they weren't to take care of all their bills and then if they had something that was remaining, go and give that little bit to the Lord, but they were to put the Lord first in priority. But that is not exactly the intended meaning here in this passage. The idea of first fruits is essentially an agricultural concept and all the work that goes into sowing a field comes with the expectation that one day the tilling and the removing of the rocks and the fertilizing the soil and the application of water and, and the sun that beats down on that field, uh, after much work and striving, that a reaping will come. The effort put into it will culminate 
in a useful crop that will be a life-sustaining blessing to that farmer that put all the effort into sowing. If the first fruits are good from that crop, then the farmer has every reason to believe that the fruit that follows it will also be good. Uh, we have a small garden in our backyard, and, I, and it's, it's not uh, very impressive. We, we just try to be humble about it and do the best we can, and sometimes things grow, and sometimes they don't. But I can tell you that no matter how little or much we know about agriculture, there's something exciting when you first see something that you can take off a vine and eat, and you know that you planted it, and you put the effort into it, and now it's bearing something that can be a blessing to your family. And so this concept of first fruits really is a promise for the rest of the harvest to come. It is the first indication that all of this work is bringing about a proper harvest. So Christ's as the first fruit is a guarantee that this crop will be good because if he is the first fruit, then you know that what is to follow will certainly be good as well. This is the first fruit concept that Jesus is bearing in this title, and it carries with it an expectation, a promise of what is to come in the remainder of the harvest. When we look at other ways that Paul uses the term in his letters, he speaks of first fruits almost as if they are the guarantee for a much larger harvest. And so look at 2 Thessalonians 2. This will be on the screen for you, verse 13. The Apostle Paul here writes as well, he says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So look at how Paul uses the word firstfruits there. He's not talking about the Thessalonians as firstfruits in exactly the same way as Christ is, because here in 1 Corinthians, Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection. But in 1 Thessalonians, he uses that term to indicate uh, that these believers in Thessalonica, to whom he is writing, were the first people saved there. This is a young church. And so he's saying, look, we have great expectation that the church in Thessalonica is going to grow, that you are the first fruits of a great and mighty work that God is doing there in that region through your church. We see this pop up again in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. This chapter we'll be studying here in just a short amount of time, where Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And the word for converts there, aparche, literally means firstfruits. It's the same exact term used in the Thessalonian passage. And so it's, it's identifying there the household of Stephanus as the first people saved in Corinth, but then we get to rejoice in seeing that there are many more that are saved now in this church as it's no longer just an infant church, an infant congregation. It's been established and it's growing and it's having some, some teething, some growing pains now as it's getting larger. Our eternal lives are not only fruit for us, they are fruit for the Lord a blessing to him and an expression of his glory and his power. When he saves you, you're blessed by that. But his great name is also blessed because now you go forth into the world as a, as a person transformed, as one who is mightily different than you were when you were living autonomously in your efforts against the gospel of God. Now that he has redeemed you and brought you into his family, he has made you something new. And so your salvation is glory to his great name. Now, for the sake of clarification, we might ask the question, this would be a, a reasonable uh, question, is Jesus truly the first fruits of resurrection? He was not the first to be brought back to life, was he? Isn't Lazarus first fruits? Or even looking back further, you can think about the girl that Jesus brought back to life, that he said that she was only sleeping, remember, and she rose from the dead because of his healing in Luke 8. Or even further back, you can think about the young boy that Elijah raised from the dead in 1 Kings 17. Why are they not 
the first fruits of resurrection. Well, those cases do not constitute the kind of resurrection that is in view here in 1 Corinthians 15. For each of those individuals, though they were raised from a dead state, they would go on to die again. They were raised to the state that their bodies were prior to their sickness or to their injury. And so Christ mercifully raised the, the young girl in Luke 8. Uh, Elijah mercifully raised the young girl in, in 1 Kings. But those individuals lived, we don't know how much longer, before they eventually faced the curse of death again. So we might call those examples resuscitation, uh, a temporary revitalization of the same flawed and mortal bodies that they formerly had. But this resurrection that Paul is arguing for, that we've been speaking of, is something of a higher magnitude. The resurrection that Jesus inaugurates is a final resurrection, one that transforms the earthly body, whatever state it is in, whether it is our living earthly body and Jesus returns and resurrects us, or whether it's a saint that went to be with the Lord many, many years ago and their body is raised and brought to a new state, both of those resurrections are now new vessels, fit for eternity, bodies that are not hamstrung by the same limitations that our physical bodies are having to deal with in the here and the now. So those who are resurrected in Christ will not taste death again. Thus far, only one person has experienced a resurrection of this magnitude, and that is Jesus himself. But when the day of judgment comes, suddenly all who have died in Christ will shed their tombs and they will rise up new. Those believers who have fallen asleep, as Paul calls euphemistically, are the culmination of the harvest guaranteed by the first fruits, that is, by the proof of Jesus' own resurrection. Paul then turns our attention to a theological parallel that is very important to our understanding of the covenants. There are two men, Adam and Jesus, who represent mankind through covenant. Do you remember when we called this key representative uh, position in, in weeks past, we called it federal headship, right? Federal headship is a covenantal arrangement whereby one man stands in for all who belong to that covenant. And so the first federal head that we know of was Adam. Adam was representative of mankind. When he was created and placed in the garden, he was given uh, blessings, he was given dominion, but he was also given a challenge. And that challenge represented a test of faith. Would he eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was the one tree that God had forbidden him to eat from. He was representative of all mankind in that test. So when Adam was faced with that temptation, when he gave into that temptation and followed in the footsteps of even eight of that fruit, he failed that test. And because of that, the curse of sin came upon all whom he represented. It was in that moment that you and I became dead in our sins because through Adam, sin has been transferred to every human being who has lived with the exception only of Jesus Christ. So Adam was a federal head, and in his federal headship, he brought curse to all who came after him. But there's a second federal head, and that federal head is Jesus. And it is in Jesus that all shall be made alive. This describes the covenant of grace, the new covenant. For uh, Jesus, when he came and took on flesh, came as a representative of all who would ever trust in him. His trial now was to live perfectly according to the law, to fulfill it, to deserve not death, but then to suffer death in the place of sinners like us 
who had earned death for ourselves by following the footsteps of the first federal head, and that was Adam. So Jesus became a new representative. And those who enter into the new covenant under his federal headship now are blessed with the, the fallout of his obedience. Uh, the, the fruit of his death, burial, and resurrection are now the blessing that we get to gain because he represented us when he went to Calvary. Now, not all are in Jesus, right? Only those to whom God has drawn himself. But for those who call upon the name of Christ, the blessings that Jesus won in his victory are now attributed to us as well. He is our federal head now. Adam is no longer our federal head. So federal headship corresponds with the Pauline use of this term, first fruits. Adam sowed sin. He sowed a harvest of sin, and the harvest that he could expect from that kind of effort of disobedience to the Lord's command was sin from those who followed after him. We reap what we sow, and we also reap what was sown before us. So as Adam reaped sin, so too do we reap sin. But Jesus sowed something much different. Jesus sowed righteousness. He sowed obedience to the Father. He succeeded where Adam failed. What was promised to Adam in the garden as a reward? Think back. What was promised to him if he had not failed his mission? What was promised to him was to eat of the tree of life. Jesus has now fulfilled that promise and through Christ and his representation, those who are in Jesus get to eat and partake of the tree of the fruit of life. We get the eternal life that Adam forfeited in his fall. So to eat from the tree of life, to experience the harvest of righteous sowing, would have fallen not only to Adam, but it would have fallen to all of his progeny because he represented all of mankind. Since he failed his task, he forfeited that. But Christ is a new federal head. And because of his victory, all who are in Christ experience the blessing of his representation. By defeating death and satisfying the requirements of justice, Jesus has won for us what Adam had lost, the gift of eternal life free from sin. Now notice that there is God-ordained timing to all of this. Look again at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Jesus rose from the grave as the first fruits of this promise. But it is not yet time for his people to do the same. When will that harvest be realized? When Jesus comes again. And when will he come again? He will come right before the end. Right before a final judgment is rendered upon all of creation. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Take note of the three chronological events here. There is a great unknown amount of time between the first and the second event. We are still waiting for that second event to happen, right? Christ has become the first fruits. He was the first of many to be resurrected, but there has not been a second fruit yet. The rest of the harvest is still waiting to come. And we don't know how long that will take. Only Christ knows that. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So this is something that we patiently wait for, church. And later on, as we partake of the Lord's table, we get to think intentionally about the return of Christ. We get to look forward to that second coming that will mark our bodily resurrection as well. Now, just to pause for a second, what happens to those believers who die before the return of Jesus? Scripture speaks to that as well, just not in this particular passage. They don't have resurrected bodies yet, and they won't until the second coming of Jesus. But until then, those who experience death and are yet in the covenant of Jesus Christ, their physical bodies will experience an intermediate state. So while their body will go into the grave, something will happen to their soul. Luke 23, 43, Jesus himself gives us insight into what happens when he's speaking to the thief upon the cross. The thief asks him to remember him when he receives his kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now that thief would shortly expire on the cross. The soldiers would break his legs and over a short amount of time he would commence in suffocating and his body would die. That body would be taken down from the cross. It would be hastily buried before the Passover. And that's where that body remains today. But the soul of that thief experienced a transition. No longer was that soul tied to the physical body that was being brutalized on that cross through crucifixion. That soul, once he expired, was brought to a place called paradise. Now, we don't know a whole lot about paradise. We, we can conjecture that it's some, some experience of living in heaven with God in a soul-type um, state, in a spiritual manner. Uh, this state is spiritual. We know that it is not physical because this thief left his body behind. And so when our loved ones in Christ die, their bodies remain here on earth, but their souls are not yet resurrected, but go to be with the Lord God in heaven in a spiritual state. This is not purgatory. It's not a time of, of wrestling through the sins you had yet to confess, as the Roman tradition tries to suggest. It is a time of restful waiting. We rejoice that those who have died who trust Christ are there with him now. But that is not their final resting place. There remains a longing for something more complete. The new heavens and the new earth will far surpass the saints who have left their bodies behind for what they are experiencing now. It'll surpass that. So between the chronological point one and chronological point two, there's an unknown amount of time. But there is basically zero time between the second and the third chronological event that are listed here. Resurrection is immediately followed by the end, by judgment, when Jesus presents the kingdom to the Father. There is an event conspicuous in its absence from this list. Do you see what it is? you see what's not mentioned here? For about the last 200 years, the most popular view of the second coming of Jesus has been what's called dispensationalism. Developed in 1830 by a man named John Nelson Darby and the later expanded by men like Cyrus Schofield and Charles Ryrie, uh, this view of looking at redemptive history sees the end times very differently than the saints that had gone to glory before them. This point of view would attempt to fill in a lot of the details between second and third chronological point that we're looking at this morning, between the resurrection of the saints and the end, the destruction of creation. Dispensationalist says 
that when Christ is so ordained it, there will be a time of rapture. There will be a moment when Christ spiritually returns and takes his remaining saints up to heaven with him. There are some questions surrounding that. After the rapture, there will be seven years of tribulation, a time of great warfare and hardship and natural disaster. And then there will be a great war which results in Satan being bound, but not yet actually fully judged. He will be bound and imprisoned for a time of a thousand years when the literal, literal millennial kingdom will begin. And this is, of course, based off the imagery that is given to us in Revelation chapter 20. That's essentially, in a nutshell, the dispensational point of view. There are other variances of it we don't have time to get into today. But you might have noticed that Paul makes no mention of that here at all in these three chronological steps that he just laid out. In this respect, the dispensationalist has to answer the question, why no mention of a rapture here? Why no mention of an idealized earthly kingdom here? A millennial kingdom. It says, and then comes the end. Not a millennial kingdom on earth, but the end of the earth and the end of the heavens as well. For when you read on in Revelation 20 and 21, you see that the end game for God is a new heavens and a new earth that are not separated, but are one and the same. So both will be rebuilt. The heavens that our deceased loved ones who are in Christ are now experiencing is a good place, but there is a new heavens and earth in which we will join them. And we will exist there not just in soul form, in spiritual form, but in body as well. So when the rapture happens, according to dispensationalists, does that mean that there's a physical resurrection there? Or is that just a soul resurrection? Do they go to the spiritual paradise? Or do they go to a new heavens and a new earth? There are many questions that flow out of that doctrine. And that is in part why I have personally left the dispensational point of view myself that I was brought up in. And I've adopted what is called the amillennial point of view, which was the prevailing perspective from the majority of church history prior to the popularization of dispensational theology. Amillennialism is a, it's a bit of a misnomer, actually. A means non, and millennial means millennial kingdom, refers to millennial kingdom there. So the essence there is that there's not a literal thousand-year kingdom uh, that we have to look forward to. The amillennialist believes that we are currently in the millennial kingdom, a kingdom where Jesus is reigning from the right hand of the Father, a kingdom where the saints are empowered by the Spirit and the promises of God are being brought forth, a kingdom where the Lord is expressing His reign through the spread of the gospel and the fulfillment of salvation in those who have yet to know Him. Uh, but this all-millennial kingdom is not a literal thousand years. We look at the word millennial there in Revelation used as uh, sort of a marker for an age or an aeon. And so millennialism is much simpler than premillennialism. It does not make an effort to fill in a lot of those details that God has chosen not to give to us in Scripture. Amillennials embrace this basic three-point chronology that Paul laid out. Christ is raised. And then after an undisclosed amount of time, when he returns, we are raised with him. And then once we have our new bodies that are fit for new heavens and an earth, the end comes. Creation is judged. The kingdom is handed over to the Father. And we are now citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. We join every saint who came before us and passed on to glory in this new physical and spiritual existence where we will serve the Lord and praise his name forever. So Jesus is the first fruit of many to be raised, but Paul has more to say about that. In the second half of this morning's passage, 
the apostle will give some insight into what is happening until then, while also expanding our understanding of the cosmic ramifications of resurrection. Now, we run into some interpretive challenges here, and you might have noticed this as we read through this passage to begin our time in the Word today, mostly because of the way that people can see the pronouns differently. Did you notice that when we were reading through that passage? Sounds a little bit confusing to us because there are so many pronouns. A pronoun is an article of speech that is generically representing a specific person. He, she, they. Been a lot of controversy about pronouns. There won't be any controversy in our sermon today too much, but... To help us out, what I've done is I've put on a slide the portion of our scripture um, starting in verse 25, and then I have included in that my best interpretation of what the pronouns are pointing to. So let's look at that again. It says, For he, referring to Jesus, must reign until he, the Father, has put all his, meaning Jesus, all Jesus' enemies, under the feet of Jesus. That last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus. What this means is that the Father then doesn't become a servant of Jesus. When it says that all things are subjected, it's talking about all things in the created order. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also subject, uh, be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under Jesus, that God may be all in all. So you can see without that direction, it can be very confusing if we're just looking at he's and his as the whole way through, particularly when there is so much in common with Christ the Son and God, the Lord God the Father. Um, so hopefully that helps to clear up some of the direction of the path, uh, the path of the scripture. Note also that Paul is referencing two Old Testament texts when he speaks of these promises being fulfilled. He looks to Psalms 110.1 and Psalm 8.6. So let's look at those passages of scripture. In Psalm 110.1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is actually the most frequently quoted text of Scripture in the entire New Testament. More than any other passage from the Old Testament, this passage of Scripture is quoted. And it's speaking of David saying to his Lord, or the Lord God saying to, it is David saying how, this is confusing, sorry. <laughs> Even I have a hard time with this. The teachings of Paul are hard to understand, right? Um, so are the Psalms, apparently. The Lord God, the Father, says to my Lord, this is David referring to Jesus before he comes to earth as his own Lord and Savior. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is the Father telling the Son that he will fulfill the promises that were made to David that one who descended from him would sit on the throne but would be a better David, a greater David, one who would reign perfectly and would reign forever and eternally. Psalm 8, 6 says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Again, speaking to the fact that the Father is going to subject all things to the authority of the Son. Now, part of reigning, if you are a king, part of reigning is bringing into continual subjugation all who would attempt to threaten your reign. That's part of reigning. Maintaining order and control in your kingdom is part of reigning. And that is an ongoing work that the triune God is always engaged with. 
we must be careful to understand. There has never been a time when the creation was out of God's control. Never. Even the fall of mankind does not represent a surprising development, some unforeseen turn of events that God has to somehow adapt to now. That's not the case. God is, to be, uh, is worthy to be praised, in part because he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and sovereignly uses every circumstance to accomplish his will and bring good to his people. So there's never been a time when God was caught off guard, when he was surprised by the events that unfolded. His reign has been perfectly intact throughout all of history. But as God moves the sands of time to suit his purposes, we are able to see and understand more clearly the ways that he is reigning over all things. I've already mentioned two of the three major theological viewpoints concerning the eschatology today. We've talked about dispensationalism a little bit. We've talked about amillennialism. And here I'm going to briefly mention a third. The postmillennial point of view, uh, theologians who ascribe to postmillennialism understand the millennial kingdom of God to be a time of Christ's reign on earth, expressing itself through the gradual and unavoidable influence of Christians upon the world in which they live. While the dispensationalists that we talked about a moment ago, they see the world getting worse and worse until it culminates in a terrible tribulation of seven years, postmillennials take the opposite view. Uh, this point of view sees the gospel's victory extending beyond the redemption of souls and into the redemption of the culture of the various secular nations of earth. When postmillennials see mentions of verses like Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 8.6, as Paul quotes them here, they get pumped up because they see them as pointing to a day when the political powers of earthly nations will succumb to the truth of the gospel and will eventually begin to reflect the values and the commands of Scripture. Um, as many conservative Christians have grown, have grown concerned with our government and governments around the world that are overstepping their boundaries, the post-millennial point of view is gaining some steam in our culture right now. now. There is an eagerness to engage the culture and to attempt to bring about meaningful change on the political level as well as the heart level. So some guys you might have heard of who are preaching in this, in this uh, tradition are Doug Wilson, uh, the people over cross politic, Jeff Durbin at Apologia Ministries, there are several men who are faithful to the Lord who ascribe to this post-millennial point of view. Now Psalm 110 and Psalm 8 may or may not speak to such a radically optimistic future where the world is so one to Christ through evangelism and the influence of the people who have said yes to the gospel and have conformed to the image of Christ that could happen. We, we could be looking forward to those things. I'm not going to discredit the fact that God can make nations godly. Even the amillennials would welcome it if it did. But it isn't what Paul is talking about here in this particular passage. Look again at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. So as Paul is using Psalms 110 and Psalms 8 to describe Christ, this fulfillment of the resurrection promises. He's not thinking directly about nations being subjugated to him. He's thinking about a spiritual enemy. He is thinking about death. Paul's focus is not on politics. He's not talking about governments that suppress the truth. He's not talking about oppressive regimes directly or cultures that need to conform to the word of God. We know that there are many examples of those out there. The last enemy is very clearly named here as death. 
So let us think biblically for a moment about this. Death must be subdued as a fulfillment of Christ's reign, right? So let's think about the reign of Christ biblically. Is the reign of Jesus current? Is it something we're waiting for or is it something that's happened right now? I would say amen. Yes, it is current. It is happening right now. All authority, according to Matthew 28, 18, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. These are the words that Jesus proclaims to us right before he commissions his church to join him in the mission of bringing this truth to the nations of the world. So all authority on heaven and earth is his. He is currently reigning. We know that when he ascended, he, he ascended to sit where? At the right hand of God the Father. The right hand of a king is the, the, a position of great influence and power. It is the, the position of one who is going out to do the will of the king and to make those things surely come to pass. So, don't be deceived, friends. Is Satan real? Yes. Is he a power? Yes. Is he in control? No. Satan is not in control of this world. Though he's been given a degree of influence on the world, Satan is bound, he is chained, he does not have control apart from what God allows him to do. Even in instances where earthly governments exceed their limits and encroach upon the freedoms of God's people, God has the final word. And he is even using these governments and these difficult circumstances to teach his people that Jesus is a better king than any earthly power could ever be. So when our government does things that drives us crazy, it makes us long for the greater reign of Jesus Christ. It makes us look forward to that perfect reign. Even though right now, we can take great comfort in knowing that Jesus is not going to reign someday. He even reigns now from heavenly thrones. So is the reign of Jesus current? Yes, it is. Is the reign of Jesus local? Meaning, is it just set aside for certain parts of the world? And the answer to that has to certainly be no. It is a universal reign. Jesus isn't a regional deity like the gods of Egypt claim to be. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But he is also the God over Nebuchadnezzar, over Genghis Khan, and over the Aztec Empire. There is no portion of the world over which Christ does not reign. All mankind will answer to him alone. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He will turn it wherever he will. This speaks to the sovereign power of Almighty God. And it doesn't just speak to the king of Israel. It speaks to every king. So when Nebuchadnezzar, this godless king, whom God used to punish his own special chosen people, Israel, and allowed them to be subjugated to him, when this king became proud and arrogant and began to exalt himself, what did God do to show Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar was not actually the real king? He took away his intellect. He made him behave as though he was a wild beast. And for a period of time, he could not think straight. He was, he was humbled. God physically humbled him. And later on, he, he repents. He feels that he has made a mistake in not, uh, not glorifying the God of the Israelites. I don't know if he was saved by that. That's a whole other debate. But there is no portion of God's creation that he is not reigning over right now. We should not see the influence and dominion of God as something that has only touched evangelized places. It all belongs to the Lord. Is the reign of Christ partial? No, it is not. But we have not yet seen the full expression of it. I love what Dr. R.C. Sproul says, but first let me show you Job 42 too. Job says, I know that you can do all things 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Notice that, become, notice that that quote comes from Job 42, the end of the book, not the beginning of the book, right? There is a lot of hardship that Job had to endure before he really came to grasp and value this wonderful reality that God is sovereign over all things. There is nothing that can thwart the will of the Lord God. And so I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Because if that single molecule is loose, then God is not truly in control. Every bit of the creation is under his mighty hand. And so we can rejoice in the comfort that comes from knowing that the God we serve is the God who is in charge. Death even is already controlled by Christ, but we see here in this text today, but it will be destroyed in due time. Death will be annihilated when it has exhausted its usefulness to God's redemptive plan. Is the full expression of Jesus is the full expression of the reign of Jesus a world where the Christians are in positive authority and post-millennial goals of influence and dominion have been totally realized? You know, that could happen. God's got the power to do that. But even that world would not be the full expression of the reign of Jesus, for that world would still contain the last enemy. That world would still have death in it. So the full expression of God's reign through Christ will occur only when the last enemy is finally defeated. The last enemy is not a president or a king or a Marxist regime. The last enemy is death. So friends, sanctification, the process whereby God makes us holier, the process by which we preach the truth to our children and proclaim it in our neighborhoods and from our porch and, and share it with those who do not yet know Christ, sanctification is, is good but it is not the end. Glorification is the end. Let us aim our hearts for the latter without neglecting the former in any way. God brings sanctification about, and that is good, but we long for that day when Christ will raise up the dead and will turn our limited earthly bodies into a physical and yet perfected body that will be fit to serve Him forever. Now, there is one last controversy I intended to touch upon before we transition to the Lord's table this morning, but for the sake of time, I decided that I'm going to stop short of that goal, and I'm going to revisit that topic later this month. So today, I would rather leave this text with the blessed assurance that Christ's last enemy is also our last enemy, and that enemy's destruction is absolutely sure, for Christ himself has already risen from the grave. He is the first fruits, the guarantee that those whom he has drawn to himself will also be raised from the grave. He must also bring about the reaping of every last soul that the Father has set apart um, to be saved by him. The next time death threatens one who you love, if they love Christ, then take great victorious joy in the knowledge that death has no true dominion over your loved one. Think about this passage of Scripture. Even if they are to experience a physical death, even if there is not a healing like we hope there to be, if they leave this world for a time, then they leave it for the blessed spiritual paradise that is home to the elect who have gone on to glory before the Lord's return. And in the end, that one whom you love will taste the ongoing fruit of victory 
that Jesus is winning for us. They will rise in an eternal state of worship and service to the God of all creation, now equipped with the uncorruptible physical body that he has given to them to go forward in uh, service to the Lord that is joined now to their regenerated soul. Uh, and, and we rejoice in that reality that we will be reunited with them if we trust in the Lord too.